Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So here's what I want to do. Before we jump into the text, let me just one minute to share a little background on Revelation, and then we're going to get, get into this, and we're going to start with our first letter today. Um, you probably uh, are aware, if you've been at church at all, Revelation is a book that's often stayed away from. It can be quite confusing. It's, it's highly apocalyptic and prophetic in nature, which means that it's very um, metaphorical and symbolic. And the, and the problem with that is that it leaves a lot of room for a wide array of interpretation. So a lot of times we just often stay away from it. Now, good news is where we're going for the next few weeks is actually the most straightforward part of Revelation. There's not a lot of that. So don't worry. It's not going to get too crazy. But I want to just share this one scripture in the very beginning of Revelation because no other book of the Bible starts this way. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, and we could put it on the screen as well, listen to what it says. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, of this book, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. No other book starts this way, and we have right from the beginning this call that says, blessed are those who hear the, the word read aloud, blessed are those who hear it, and then blessed are those who take heart, in other words, actually apply to what is in here. And here's what often happens, and there's nothing wrong with this, but when we go through the book of Revelation, we often get stuck, I think, on just letting it arouse like our imagination and what all these things could mean. But the truth is, there is a really powerful theme that runs through this book, which is that Jesus Christ is a victorious lamb, and he's coming back to reign and rule forever. And it says the time is near. So throughout this book, there's a constant call to be faithful and obedient to what's written in here because the time is near. And Jesus Christ is faithful to his word, and he will return. And so let me just share on John real quick. John is the one who wrote this book. He's the apostle John. He also wrote the gospel of John. He also has three letters in the New Testament. Um, he, when he wrote this book, this is, he's a, he was the last living apostle, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos off the Aegean Sea. Uh, the Roman emperor Domitian exiled him there because of his faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And it's while he's on this island that he has this vision of Jesus Christ. And it begins with these, these letters. Jesus says, write, write these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. These are historical churches. But as we'll see, there are timeless truths that apply to us today that we can, we can glean from and that we can, we can learn a lot from. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first letter, which is to the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start right in the beginning. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 today. Now, let me just share this before we dive in. What we're talking about, the title of today's message is First Love. This topic so excites me, yet it's also quite overwhelming because at the, at the end of the day, this is, this is the heart of the Christian faith. Ultimately, I'm just going to put it out there what this message is about. Jesus is going to write a letter to a church. John is going to write it down. Jesus speaks it to John, and basically what he's going to say is, in every way you seem to be progressing and moving forward and you are diligent in your service and you work hard to preserve sound doctrine but he says but I hold this one thing against you you have forsaken your first love which is me the entire Christian faith hinges on the encountering and the continual experiencing of the person of Jesus he is life he is truth he is the way there's nothing outside of him 
Even our disciplines, they're all called to lead us to encounter him. That's why you can read the word, and if you read it just to get scriptures and not him, you'll find it'll be very empty and very dead. And so if you look throughout the entire Bible, I just want to kind of set the, the framework here for how important this topic is. If you look throughout the entire Bible, you will see this theme run from beginning to end. Man's created for relationship with God, sin severs it, and the rest of the story is God working to have a relationship again with man. And when he sends Jesus Christ and brings about salvation, the main purpose of salvation is not what the Bible may call justification, right? To, to be once guilty and now you are brought into right standing, you're righteous. That's a beautiful truth. That is a truth. But the, the whole purpose of salvation is union with God again. It's reconciliation back to him. That's why the highest privilege of the gospel is adoption. Because it elevates and speaks to the relationship of which we now have access to, which is Abba Father, God of the universe now, we can commune with because of what Jesus has done. It's the greatest privilege that flows from, from the gospel, and it's, it's the heart of this entire Bible. That's why if you read through Paul's letters, only three times, depending on your translation, Paul will use the word Christian. Over 200 times, Paul uses the words in Christ or united with Christ or something along those lines. Why is that? Because Paul does not want us to think that the Christian faith is about elevating a code of ethics and, and, and theology and doctrine, as important as all these things are. All of that flows from Jesus. He is the purest of doctrine. He's the purest of theology. And so when Paul speaks of believers of Christ, he always says in Christ because he promotes the, the relationship, the communion that we are supposed to have with him. And I so believe that this message is so important because at the heart of all of us, so guilty of this, we often resort back to this religious nature that wants to take this glorious love relationship with Jesus, and we just reduce it to this formality. We just go through these religious activities and just go through the checklist, and we never have that, that, that burning passion for Jesus, the heart relationship. We can speak the language. We, we, we've adopted this new moral code to live by. We, we aggressively you know, try to stay away from the forbidden things. And then we stamp the name of Christ on it. But Jesus has so much more that comes from this union. He's the vine. There's no fruit outside of him. And I think if you've if experienced anything like me, it's very easy. And this is what we're going to see in this church. It's very easy to start in this place where you have this heart that's burning with passion for Jesus. And then somewhere along the way, you wake up one day and you say, how did my heart get so cold? And you say, I don't understand. I have no love for Jesus. In fact, if I'm really honest, I don't even want to be around the people of God. I don't want to go to church. I mean, I just, I have to admit that more times than I'd like to, that I just find myself sometimes, sometimes in this place, say, how in the world did I get here? And uh, a while back, God gave me this illustration. How many of you have ever, um, how many of you ever been to a bonfire? Yeah, everyone's pretty much been to one, right? Um, Fourth of July, I was with Crystal and uh, our family, and we were at uh, Cedar Beach, is that right? I swear we thought there was a fire burning down. <laughs> Remember that? This thing was roaring and ripping down all the way at the end of the beach, and everyone's like, this is a fire. we got to get out of here. It uh, wound up being bonfires, and this guy had all these different bonfires going. But, but I, I share that because you know what's amazing? Is that the next morning when you go to those bonfires, you know what you'll find? Nothing but smoldering ashes. Why? Because all fire naturally goes out if it's not tended to. The natural quality of fire is that it will eventually burn out if you do not give it care and if you do not tend to it. 
And so it is with our love relationship with Jesus and this passion that we're called to have for him. That if we do not tend to it, if we do not care for it, one day we can wake up in this progress and say, how in the world did I get here when my heart is so cold to the things of God? And we're going to look at a, at a church that Jesus addresses this very thing. So I hope you're ready to go on a journey because I, I really believe that we're going to be blessed today going through this. So Revelation chapter 2, let's start in, in verse 1. We've got it up on the screen. It's entitled First Love. And this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. These are the words of Jesus, right? These are the words of him, meaning Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's an impressive resume. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We won't speak much about them, but this was this radical sect that was preaching basically heresy, in particular uh, worshiping idols and sexual immorality. And verse 7 says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this applies for us today. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I want to speak about this principle of first love. Just walk with me for a moment. This is so, so important. Every letter that we're about to go through starts off. In fact, there's pretty much a similar pattern through all of these letters. And every letter will start off by referencing a characteristic of Jesus Christ. If you were to go back into chapter 1 of Revelation, you would find that when John first has this vision of Jesus, he begins to describe things that he sees about Jesus. For example, he says that his hair is as white as wool. He sees the glorified Christ. He says his eyes are burning like fire, and he goes on and mentions other things. And then Jesus actually speaks about who he is as well. And Jesus begins to say things like, I'm the first and the last, and I was once dead, but now I'm alive. And he shares all of these things. Why? Because Jesus starts off each of these letters to the churches by referencing one of those characteristics about himself. The reason why is because what he is referencing ties directly into the heart of the message for the church. He wants us to know a specific thing about his nature that applies to the message he has for them. So in this particular church, he starts off by saying that he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Then he says, and I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the first part references most likely to he it basically shows his authority. He holds what could be angels or leaders of the church, and he holds them in his hands. But I want you to understand what the second part means. And you've got to walk with me because this is so, so rich to what he's saying here. Jesus in chapter 1 is pictured as a priest who walks among these seven golden lampstands. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and we were to look into the temple, you would see that there is the most holy place, right, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Then there's the veil. And then there's the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place in the day of atonement. But in, the, but in the holy place is where the priests would do their work. And there was three articles in there. The showbread, the golden altar of incense, and the menorah, or the candlestick, or the lampstand. 
And the job, it says in Exodus 27, is that the job of the priests for all generations to come was they were to keep the fire burning on the lampstand, on the menorah. Day and night, they were to tend to it, and they would bring oil to it so that it would never go out. So when it says that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands, it's a picture of him as the fulfillment of the great high priest. He is the one who walks amongst the churches and keeps the fire and the light burning. And unlike the Old Testament where the priest had to bring oil and they had to, to light it with oil, Christ doesn't bring oil. He brings himself. He shows his superiority to them because his presence is light. His presence is life. And so Jesus declares them and says, look, it is me who walks amongst you. It is my presence that gives you the light and life. The church is called to be salt and light, right? Jesus is teaching us that light is not something we possess of our own. Just as the menorah would die out if the priest didn't tend to it, so it is the light of the church, corporately and individually, is found from Jesus. And he is saying to this church, that presence that sustains you, that presence that gives you life and light, you are drifting from that presence. He tells the church of Ephesus and reminds them that their welfare is directly dependent on him. And he begins by Remind him, saying, I'm the one who walks amongst the seven golden lamps. It is my presence that sustains you as a body and individually. And even though you are doing all the right things, you are drifting from that presence. And you will not be able to sustain yourself. Come back to me, he begins to cry out, to come back to your first love. And you know what it says? I love it. It says, he walks amongst them. That's not a one-time thing. This wasn't for a season. This wasn't for a moment. The tense of that is present, which means Jesus continually walks amongst the churches looking for the hearts that have grown cold, and he begins to speak to them. And with a call of love, begins to call out to them to say, come back to me. Your fire is dwindling. Come back to me. I am what you need. And I don't know about you, but my hope is in the fact that Jesus is the faithful high priest who walks amongst us, who has seen my heart many times begin to drift and grow cold, and he's the one who begins to come to me and speak to me and call out to me and say, come back to me, my son. And I just, I just wonder if someone even right there finds himself in that place, that I want you to know of the faithfulness of God, that even you, you, you see the faithfulness by the fact that you're here right now, and he wants you to receive that truth, that he walks amongst us today by his spirit, looking for those who have grown cold, and he sees you, and he gives you a call to come back to him. And I've found in my life that if we, lose, if we lose our fire, if we find ourselves still a child of God, but our heart has grown cold, it will certainly not be for lack of Christ's part, because he has called out to us again and again and again. Listen to me. The, the grace of God, it empowers us, but it does not overpower us, because the greatest... The purest of love is choice, and so his grace gives us everything we need to respond and say yes, but he will not make the choice for us. He calls us to say, respond to me, and if your heart feels cold to the things of God, you may be growing and serving and all these other things. Hear the voice of the Lord who calls you with the loving call of the shepherd to return to him, and listen to what it says. He, he sets this stage of telling them who he is, that he's the faithful one who walks amongst them, but look at in verses 2 and 3 of these these compliments that he gives them about their resume. Verse 2 says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He says, I know your labor. This was a church that toiled into the point of exhaustion. He says, I, I know that you, you cannot tolerate wicked people. 
and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. I mean, these are people that, that desired uh, purity. They, they, they uh, desired to preserve truth. They discerned false teachers. They resisted the false apostles. This was a church that their, their, their standard of living was not based on the culture but on Scripture. This was a church that was serious these were not a, this was not a church that was just deliberately just running from God. They, they were serious about the things of God. Verse 3 says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. They persevered under persecution. We'll look at a second some of the background of this city, but this was a fallen and dark city full of idolatry, and they refused to give in to idol worship, and they were probably the, the object of physical violence, social ostracism, economic oppression, but they didn't give in. These are not fair-weather Christians. They, didn't, they, they were committed and serious to Jesus Christ. And why is that important? Because I think we often think of someone whose heart grows cold. You see, God just started opening my eyes of just this a whole, he just sees things so differently. He's pleased with this stuff. Please understand that. He's so pleased with it. That's why he commends them. He's pleased with preserving the sound diet. He's pleased with them persevering through persecution. But the reason why this is so important is because I often think that if someone's heart grows cold, it's because they're deliberately running from God. But this is a people who are actually deliberately going after. They are honestly striving to do the right thing. But in this process, they have lost sight of what was most important. And I don't know if you've ever been there before, but I certainly have, where in many ways it appears outwardly that I'm growing in the Lord, doing more things, but inwardly, my heart is growing colder and colder and colder. And I have found that this process, although it's a progress, it, uh, it happens quite, quite fast, actually, where the harding process, God refers to himself as the potter and we are the clay. That's one of his illustrations. You ever, you ever see how that takes place? Right uh, when, the, when the potter's on the wheel and the clay is in front of him, it's in his hands, right? We're supposed to be in the hands of the potter. Well, if you ever see, they usually have some type of, um, I don't know if it's just pure water, but some type of liquid that they dip their hands in, and they, and they keep this, uh, the clay moist, and it's pliable. In fact, if you ever see it, it's incredible. They just put a finger in, and as it spins around, all of a sudden, there's all these grooves being made. It's so effortless. But the moment you take that clay out of the potter's hands and put it on the side, the hardening process begins immediately. And the moment that we begin to, we could be his, but the moment we begin to drift from intimacy, there's a hardening process in our hearts that begins to take place immediately. And so Jesus comes to them, and he lists all these great things in verse 2 and 3. We just went through them. He lists this impressive resume. But then listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. This is such a rich teaching because Jesus is showing us that what he sees is so different than what we see. He's teaching us what maturity actually looks like because if I were to walk into this church, it has the appearance of maturity. But Jesus is actually telling them that he's not devaluing what they're doing but what he's doing is placing his value on the relationship, the communion with him. And he says, you are leaving what is of most value and most significance. I, I'm pleased with the things you do. But you drifting from that communion with me is what I place my highest value on. That's why it says in the scriptures, consider the height from which you have fallen. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Why would he say that? Because the love relationship with Jesus stands far above than all these other things. And so he speaks out and says, you have fallen from a great height because that is of the greatest value and significance, the communion, the love relationship, because everything is birthed through that relationship. Matthew 22 tells us that to love the Lord your God, right, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it is the first and greatest commandment, not option, first and greatest commandment. Why? Because God knows that the highest quality of lifestyle flows when we walk in obedience to that first commandment. When we walk in deep love with him, everything else begins to fall into place. We begin to love ourselves as we should. We begin to love others as we should. We begin to serve from a place of overflow rather than trying to get something in return. Our service is actually not selfish. We actually are giving sacrificially. If you serve not from a foundation of intimacy with Jesus, I'll tell you what will happen. Burnout, disappointment, and deep wounds because you'll never feel appreciated enough. You'll never feel like anyone actually values or cares. And I don't, it doesn't matter if you last for a few years. At some point... You will burn out if the love relationship with Jesus is not what is, is fueling you. And so he says, you have fallen from a great height because this is of the greatest importance is this love relationship with me. Amazingly, what, what I feel like Jesus was showing me is that, again, outwardly, this church looks like they're progressing. He's actually giving a call that they're backsliding. And that totally rocked my world because I thought, wait a minute, I, I thought... I thought they were doing things that every way showed that they were growing and maturing, and there, there is an aspect of that. But backsliding is not, is not to stop doing the things of God. It's when our heart stops aching for his presence. And I know what? In my life, I have found myself living in that place, and you just get stuck there, and you think, like, I, I can't get out of this, and this is how it is. And come on, we know that it, it starts off good, but we know every relationship, this is where you find yourself. And when anyone ever speaks on this passion again, and they speak from a heart of fire, we begin to say, that's just radical, wishful thinking, and it's impractical. There's no way they'd ever experience that. But these are the words of Jesus calling these cold hearts to come back. This letter to the church of Ephesus, it shows this incredible truth that we all have the propensity, we all have the tendency to do the work of Christ without him. We all have the tendency, if we're not careful, to start going through and doing all the things of God, but leave what is most important out, which is him. And, and our, our work and everything is not flowing from this place of intimacy. And here's what I've experienced in my life, is that it does not matter what God gives you. It does not matter where he raises you up. It does not matter the level of influence he gives. It doesn't matter what he blesses you with. If your path is not leading you to touch and taste Jesus every single day, it's empty. Eventually, you'll say, this isn't enough, and you'll leave. And I want to encourage you that the call here is for the church to get back to being in a place where everything they do flows from their intimacy with Jesus. And this is why I truly believe that the enemy of our lives, which we know the Bible speaks of, Satan himself, he doesn't really come against our good works. He comes against our devotion to Christ. Because if that can be altered, everything else then begins to fall apart. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3, what Paul says. He says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
That's what he comes against, that, that simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Because if that goes, man, you can, listen, it's, it's so deceptive. You'll start doing all the things, and no one notices. No one knows. I'm just, I'm telling you, I've been there. I've been there. I've been, uh, God, get, just been there way too many times. And you can get up and still speak and do all these things. And no one knows, and you think, like, man, I'm cool, I'm, I'm fine, no one knows going. But deep down, you know there's an aching that you're, you've, you've, there's an intimacy that you're longing for. And eventually, it always, it just always blows up because God loves us, and he doesn't want us to stay in that place. And eventually, you just can't sustain that anymore. And so he calls this church to come back to him. Now, listen, you may be thinking, well, listen, I, I hear what you're saying, that this relationship with Jesus, but this is probably for, for more of a new believer, you don't know what I've experienced with the Lord. He's done miraculous things in my life, so this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I've seen God move in, in miracles in my life and supernatural power, and so this is for maybe like a weak Christian, but I, I'm, I'm beyond this. But let me remind you of the church of Ephesus because the Bible actually gives us a lot of background on them. You know who their founding teachers were? The apostle Paul, then Timothy, and then the apostle John. I don't know if there's any better leadership you can have than these three men. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. Three years he poured into them. Read the book of Ephesians. I mean, he spoke incredible gospel-changing truths to this church. Let me remind you, in Acts chapter 19, we, we see this picture of just a, a snippet of what happens in this, in this city. But in Ephesus, this is where Paul used to meet in this small little room. And he was teaching the gospel, and it was so powerful that it spread throughout all of Asia Minor from this tiny little classroom. That happened right there in their city. This is the same city that they were experiencing such revival that people took all of their witchcraft, their scrolls, and everything else and brought it to the center of the city and burnt it. Can you imagine that scene? Going to Times Square in Manhattan, and everyone just bringing all this idolatry and just burning it and saying, because we've come to find out that Jesus is who he says he is. Paul, Paul had such... Uh, such success in this city that they had this goddess, the Roman goddess Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She was the goddess of fertility. They worshipped her through prostitution. You want to talk about a dark and fallen land. And when Paul comes, there is such revival that people stop buying the shrines of this goddess. So one of the silversmith Demetrius is up in arms because Paul is just putting him out of business. And he calls him a troublemaker. And there's these riots that are taking place. And I share all that to tell you this was a church that was not founded in a weak place. They lived in just utter darkness, and then these men of God come, declare the goodness and the gospel, and the kingdom of light comes and begins to overtake the darkness. They experienced miraculous things take place here. Their teaching was strong. They witnessed it. And this church, 40 years later is when this is written, 40 years later, a generation later, and God says, your hearts have drifted from me. You do all the right things, but I want your heart. And so what, what does he call them to do? I'll just close here. Three things, starting in verse 5. He says, consider how far you have fallen, or remember, as some translations say, remember, remember the things Repent and do the things you did at first, or return to your first works. And so he says three things. He says, remember, repent, and return. And just listen up as we close here. Jesus, this is his words to them as they find themselves in this place. He says, remember, reflect, take inventory, evaluate, 
Think about when you had your heart burning for Jesus. Remember what that was like. Remember when your heart was on fire for him. What's changed? What's missing? What's happened since then? He says, remember and go back to that place. Oftentimes you may hear with a husband and wife that have gotten to a place where their hearts have grown cold to one another. Their counsel will probably most likely say, hey, let's go back to when you guys first met each other and talk about what it was like. Go back to your wedding day. What was it like when you stood across from one another and you looked at each other and you made those vows to one another? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. He says, remember, go back to that place, that beautiful place, that precious place when your heart, you just were so in love with Jesus. He calls him back to that. And then he says, and repent. Oh, that sounds bad, right? No, repent is a beautiful thing that he calls us to do. It's because he's jealous for us. He says, repent. He says, turn because I want you. He says, I have more for you than how you're living right now. This isn't, this isn't a voice of condemnation. This is a redemptive rebuke. It, it's a rebuke that has hope that says, I want to restore you back to this place where your heart burns and, and the light of Jesus is just so strong that everyone can see it. I want to take you back to that. I don't want you to settle in a place of this being a burden and joyless, just going through the motions. He says, I got more for you than that. And so he calls us to, to repent, not to come back to this fuzzy feeling, but to a faith that's motivated by the deepest of love, where all things that we do flow from our intimacy with, with him. I tell you, repentance, conviction, a lot of times it gets a really bad rep. <laughs> but like I said, God has just shown me because of his heart for us, it's such a beautiful thing. And when God convicts us, I want you to hear this, that if you feel any bit way that there is, you feel like God is speaking to you, I want you to know something that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If God has justified us, who can condemn us? His voice is not one of condemnation, it's not one of shame, and it's not one of guilt. When God convicts us, what he's doing is he's showing us that the reason why we feel dissatisfied is because we are on a path that's taking us further away from intimacy with God. The Holy Spirit makes a connection to say, listen, I want to show you something. You feel empty, you feel the way you do because you are drifting from life himself. So come back to him. It's the glorious truth of what God does when he convicts our hearts. And then he says this, finally, he says, remember, repent, and then return to the works that you did at first. And similar to that remember, I think he takes us back to that place where we recall when we came to the understanding that God could love someone like me. Right? You remember when you first experienced that? You remember when you came to the understanding that he forgave you? Remember when you came to the understanding that he wanted someone like you and how your service and all that you did flowed from that truth. So he says, go back to that place and return to your first works. And I think that's so important because often if you've ever been stuck in a situation where your heart has grown cold, if you've been, if you've been there like I have, I've often just waited somehow. I think like, okay, God's going to have to just miraculously zap me and then my heart will burn again for him. But actually what this says here is that we're not just called to just wait. He says, return to your first works. Return to the things that you did when you were so in love with Jesus Christ. Return back to that place. And I tell you, it's like, it's like tending to that fire I shared you with. Listen, you may start. You may start off and say, wait a minute. I thought he said we're supposed to be moving from love. And this feels a lot like duty and discipline. When you start, you may feel that way at first. It may feel like duty and discipline, but I promise you this, that as you begin to encounter him, as you begin to experience him, 
that which started and was motivated by, by discipline and duty will soon turn to delight. And before you know it, you'll be doing things from love. You never have to tell two people that are in love to stop spending time together, right? So as we begin to take those steps and we begin to experience him and our heart begins to burn again, all of a sudden we'll see ourselves doing the things of God, not from any other reason than we just love him and that we're pleased in him. So I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come forward as we just close here. He gives them a call to remember, repent, and to return to the first works. And I hope, I hope you've just heard the heart of God that his desire is for us to be a church that, that burns for him. This was a corporate word that he gave specifically in this next verse. But he did say to them, he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He was speaking now to the church. And he said, look, because you can't exist without him. He says, you're going to go into extinction. The church will stop existing if you, if you move from me. And do you know that the church of Ephesus by the fourth century was gone? We only wonder that they ever take heed to this call. But it's nothing but ruins there today. And let me just say, speak first corporately that my heart is that we would be a church that everything we do flows from intimacy. Everything we do flows from intimacy with Jesus because the moment it stops being, being about that, what are we doing then? Why are we actually gathering here? I believe in my heart that there are many churches that we see that will rise and we see them fall and their rising is incredible. But what you find out often is that once the leader leaves, they were built on the shoulders of a charismatic leader and not built on the presence of God, not built on people who loved Jesus and said, Jesus, I don't care where we go, I don't care what we do, but one thing I know is we, we can't move without you. Everything we do has to flow from intimacy with you. But let me just speak to a, us individually real quick. Why don't you stand with me? I just believe Jesus wants to put a burning passion in the hearts that have grown cold. How many of you remember the scene where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus or he meets the two disciples after he resurrects, right? It's right in between the resurrection and the ascension. There's this 40-day period. And while Jesus... Well, Jesus visits these two disciples who they can't recognize him. And Jesus, they're, they're really downcast because they said, man, we thought Jesus was this person, but I guess he's not. And Jesus begins to teach them all the scriptures that point to him. And in the end, they wind up saying, hey, would you come and have a meal with us? And he says, okay. And when they break bread, they realize who Jesus is. And then they say this, did not our hearts burn when he spoke with us? And I realize that burning hearts come from walking with God. It's from the communing with God. Our lack of burning, lack of passion is because of our own inconsistencies. And I believe that today God wants to call us to have our hearts just be set on him again. Hear the voice of a loving shepherd who walks amongst us, who sees those who have grown cold, and he calls you back to say, return to your first love. Thank you for listening to Home Church's podcast. To go deeper into the message, text DEEPER to 66866. If you would like to give to this ministry, you can text the amount to 631-693-4176 or visit us at myhomechurch.org backslash give.